0: Hi, folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. Uh, That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Tuesday, May twenty second, two 2012, and this is episode 906 of the Survival Podcast. And Today I have a really cool guest, uh, Caleb Causey, standing by on the line. I'll be bringing him on in just a moment. He's a really cool guy. He's here today to talk to us about his company, Lone Star Medics and tactical medical training, and some other cool stuff. Before I bring them on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie Wildcraft down there somewhere south of Austin, don't give away her exact location. I guess she doesn't want people coming in and taking her tomatoes or whatever. But uh, she's an awesome gal. She's been a supporter of the show for a very long time. And she has an amazing DVD called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or a Small Farm. And if you get that, it'll help you turn your backyard into a food production machine so that you can feed yourself. Remember, folks, storage is finite, and the best quality food is the food that you've harvested or picked today. Check out our DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, at Backyard Food Production. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You know, I often say that your gun without ammo is a club and a very expensive club. But even your gun with ammo without proper training on how to actually use it in a crisis situation isn't really much better. There's a lot of people who have had everything they've needed to survive in a situation, firearms or not, and failed to survive. Because when we end up in a crisis, the mind sort of locks up. And we don't default to our highest level of ability in a true crisis. We default to our highest level of training. So we want to make sure that we're getting good quality training all the time. And Fortress Defense Consultants will provide you with that level of training. Check them out today at FortressDefenseConsultants.com. And remember, if you can't travel to their facility, but you can put together a small group of people that want some of the best training you can ever, ever get, they will come to you and they'll even customize training and consulting to your needs. Check them out again today, Fortress Defense Consultants.com. Remember, the best way to get in touch with uh, Fortress Defense Consultants, Backyard Food Production, or any of the companies that sponsor the Survival Podcast would be go to our website first, the com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. There are brand pirates out there, and I want to make sure that if you're following my recommendation, you're dealing with a company that I actually personally endorse. All of our sponsors fall into that category. Next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are great ways to do that. Uh, Also, check out tspcopper.com for some really cool copper medallions and AOCS currency. Hope to have Rob Gray from AOCS back on very soon with some work they're doing with Free Lakota Bank. Some big news is coming out today about a new option. It'll be the first option like this ever that Americans are actually able to participate in. Thanks to the Lakota Nation. More on that later this week. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll support the show at $0.18.3 cents per episode if you figure out what an annual membership is. And uh, if you are military, law enforcement, or some other type of first responder, prior service or active duty, please email me before you join at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line, and uh, when you do that, I'll respond back with a special discount code to thank you for your service. And with that, I have the housekeeping wrapped up. I want to now introduce Caleb Causey. He started his career riding around with MedStar Ambulance Services in Fort Worth, Texas, as part of the Boy Scouts of America Explorer program all the way back at the age of 16. After high school, he joined the United States Army as a combat medic. He's deployed to various locations of the Balkans, where he worked as a line medic with the 82nd Airborne and in, in the ER of the 212 MASH unit. He's especially enjoyed his duty as an Op 4 Medical Station in Louisiana. After serving his country, Caleb joined the city of Benbrook's fire department and served there as a volunteer firefighter and emergency medical technician. Over the next several years, Caleb was involved with the department's rescue dive team and worked as a tactical medic with the local area SWAT team. Caleb has also worked with multiple private military and security companies as a medic and as an operator. Caleb actually completed paramedic school in College Station, Texas. That's where he attained his American Heart Association's BLS instructor, advanced cardiovascular life support, and pediatric advanced life support certifications, along with being a heat saver instructor and an emergency medical services instructor for the state of Texas. And there's more, but I'm out of breath. And I just have to say, hey, Caleb, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man.
1: Hey, Jack, it's good to be here.
0: So you're with uh, Lone Star Medics. Can you start out just by telling us what that is? What's Lone Star Medics?
1: Lone Star Medics is a field and excuse me, Lone Star Medics is a field and tactical medical training company. And basically, what that boils down to is we're our goal is to. It's been told by us and other people to say, hey, well, we give you the tools to combat that feeling of helplessness when a friend or loved one is severely injured.
0: So, I mean, how, how are you guys different? You mentioned tactical there, so like, how are you different than like a first aid, uh, class from like the Red Cross or the American Heart Association, and, and what do you mean by the tactical components? Who are your, you know, your students generally, that type of thing?
1: Our students were, our, I guess our target, target audience really varies. Uh, when we say field medicine, uh, we mean that, okay, basically what happens when your the field meaning anywhere except the ER lobby, the lobby of the ER. So if I get hurt on the side of the road or at a deer blind or out on the farm, that's what I would consider the field. So how does that change? We don't typically teach first aid uh, courses, nothing against the American Heart of First a- or, excuse me, American Red Cross. They're both phenomenal organizations, and we encourage everybody to, hey, you need to go take their classes as well. Their classes cover some of the very, very basics and they may be, they're a little bit more elementary, if you will, compared to what, the way we teach and the curriculum that we add to it. Our goal is not to teach people how to be the medics, but just, hey, what do we do until the medics get there? Now, granted, we've got courses specifically for healthcare professionals, for your ENTs, paramedics, and, uh, your PAs, doctors, RNs, and stuff. That's, that's in both field and tactical medicine. But the tactical medicine aspect means, okay, what do we do once the the environment becomes a tactical environment, meaning once the potential or for bullets to be flying in the air or, hey, we are in an environment where bullets are flying in the air both directions, how does medicine change and how do we start to do things a little bit different than we normally would at a typical car wreck scene?
0: Okay, and I mean, so you have, I guess your, your, your students then that come take your courses, run the gamut from somebody that might just be... Uh, a guy with a big farm and, and a ranch who wants to make sure that he can take care of people that he, he might have to wait a long time for response or take a long time to get them there to EMTs that are dealing with you know trauma on the road to uh, maybe preppers that want to make sure that they can uh, deal in like a collapsed medical situation.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, It's been interesting now that we've been around for about three years who all comes to our classes. We've had everybody from soccer moms to uh, guys working overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan to, uh, even law enforcement to, uh, you know, and people that just want to be prepared to understand that, hey, just because I call 901 doesn't mean that they're always going to make it there immediately.
0: You know, uh. Or maybe sometimes not at all.
1: <laughs> correct, correct. And it doesn't take a huge natural disaster to cause that. I mean, was it last year when we had the, uh, the Super Bowl here in town, uh, that we had all the ice and roll response times for ambulances? Ambulance has got to drive on the same streets that you can't drive on to get to the hospital. So even an ice storm like that, shutting down a few major freeways, delays response times, which means now you're sitting there with your friend or loved one, your teammate, who's ha- who's had an accident, and now what do we do until they get here? So it may not be five to seven minutes. It may be a couple hours. Or if you're up in the hills or some type of, uh, like you said, medical uh, collapse, then sure, then, you know, it may be there a couple days
0: yeah, I remember at the same time that we had that ice storm there in the Dallas area that there was, uh, you know, storms all across the country and it was I think in Missouri or Illinois there was a guy that was having heart problems and they just basically said we can't get to your house. You need or somebody needs to drag you or carry you or whatever about 50 yards and that's as close as we can get. And basically the guys response and the family's response was hell no. You come to us because we said so, and we're taxpayers, and the dude died. Um, and they probably could have gotten to help, and I think there is a mentality that, like, you know, people think, like, they expect it, like, I paid for it, but, you know, you could pay for a pizza, but if I'm out of dough, I can't make you one.
1: Right, right.
0: So um, one of the big questions I get from people all the time what should I put in my, my, my bug out vehicle kit for medical supplies? What should I have if I go hiking? What should I have in my home? You know, What what should be in my big med kit, my small med kit? So what are some of the things that you think people should make sure that they definitely have on hand to deal with situations like this and maybe some of the things that people generally don't even think about?
1: Well, it's funny. We get the same questions from, from our students as well. That's probably the number one question about kit selection, what works, what doesn't. Uh, one of the things that – we try to, you know, um, express and try to really pound into our students' head is, hey, we're giving you the the knowledge. You know, we'll teach you how to control bleeding, um, and here's some yeah, here's some tools in the toolbox that make that job easier. But we always have a saying in uh, in emergency medicine that we treat our patient, and not our equipment. Meaning, don't rely too having upon equipment, just rely upon your 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 smarts, if you will, and your you know. Common sense and your training, resort back to your training. Okay. Yeah. We do need to create a tourniquet. Um, granted, let's, do we have a tourniquet here? No. Okay. Well, let's make an improvised one. And without some proper training on that, again, with the training tool and the tool in your toolbox is, Hey, my training and my capability of putting that knowledge of how to create those. Now, granted, if in a typical first aid kit, absolutely the first thing I always look at for traumatic injuries is a tourniquet. Um, they are not some mythical, oh, last resort type of deal uh, that used to be the training of it, sure. But the tourniquet first thing I usually look at, and people always ask, well, where do we get these things? And I, I will tell people this to this day. There's not a prefabricated kit on the market today that works 110% of the time. Uh, there's, And that includes some of the ones that we've just started to- uh, producing and trying to build. That being said, every scenario or environment that you're working in or you're living in is different from the other, um, and there's th- what we call different types of medicine. Well, if you're someone that works in a cubicle all day, well, then you probably don't need a, uh, what the military nomenclature, the individual first aid kit or an IFAC. Well, that an IFAC pouch is designed to be worn on some type of body armor, molly attached chest rig. Well, if you're working in a cubicle, and depending what company you work for, you're probably not going to be wearing body armor. Um, you may need something that's just a shoulder bag or something else, the, that ankle wrap or something uh, that'll hold that stuff. So a 20 usually first, uh, then I'd look at some type of pressure dressings and then maybe a hemostatic agent like your quick clock combat gods or your cell locks, those type of things. Um, a lot of people sit there and think, oh, I've got a package of quick clock from uh, the, the local sporting goods store and I'll throw that out my glove compartment, and I don't need anything else. And it's that's... Not exactly the mentality we want to have on our students. It's those hemostatic agents are actually probably your second or t- third tier um, piece of equipment. Um, but then there's probably another dozen or so pieces of kit or uh, medical equipment that you could put into a first aid kit, again, depending on your environment. So it really will vary from a uh, bad day in Baghdad to, hey, I'm out here at the the deer blind up in my... To hey, I'm out on the ranch. To hey, I want to be prepare, prepared for something in the vehicles or at the house uh, for a bug out bag. Obviously, bug out bag you're wanting something lightweight and you can move with. Um, but then if it's hey, we're going to be in a vehicle, then sure maybe we can stack it up to a chest or something instead of a uh, a uh, go bag.
0: So what are some of the things that like okay? Obviously tourniquet. Uh, hemostatic agents, pressure dressings. Like I always recommend the Israeli battle dressing. I think that's probably one of the best ones there is. Um, but maybe some other things that, that that genuinely save lives when you have them on hand because there's things that happen where if I don't have, uh, you know, if I, if I scrape my elbow and it hurts and it's bleeding, I'm not going to bleed to death from a, an elbow scrape. Sure, it would be great if I could get it cleaned out and not get an infection or whatever, but sooner or later I'm going to get back to where I can take care of it but there are certain things that, that are generally the things that, that take lives if they're not addressed immediately and if we're waiting for responders we may not be able to wait that long what are some of the things that you've seen like that that, that are you know potentially you know lead to death without proper treatment or or supplies
1: well usually if uh, there's two types of uh, I guess emergency medicine there's your penetrating trauma and penetrating and blunt trauma and then the second one, being makes, that breaks it down the trauma side of the house, and then there's the medical emergencies, stuff like your diabetic emergencies or your seizures, um, stroke, and that sort of stuff. On the trauma side, whether it's uh, usually, now granted blunt trauma being one of the largest killers in America, we're talking about car wrecks just by sheer population of vehicles, okay? Um, heart attack being number one. Well, okay, if we're going to fix heart attack, well, then we need to carry on an automated external defibrillator. Well, those things can run up to about $1,500 a piece, uh, depending. And yes, it would be a great world if we could all drive around with those in the trunk of our cars. Life would be great. Not everybody's got $1,500 to, to swing like that. But a, uh, a good kit that you could keep to, for the penetrating trauma, if you're bleeding outside of your body or outside the skin, not internal bleeding, um, would be first your tourniquets. Uh, we recommend uh, the two types of uh, commercially made tourniquets out there that actually work, do their job, and are actually applied self-aid and buddy-aid easily with one hand or by yourself. One is a soft T-wide, and the other one is the uh, cat tourniquet. Um, Those two, the only two tourniquets we'll actually show our students in our classes, and we'll have another couple of other handful of their tourniquets out there, but those are so far from what we've done on our homework and research to find out that, hey, this is what's working uh, whether it be in the military aspect, even on the, uh, civilian EMS side, what are people using? But it's, uh, evidence-based medicine. It's not just the theory that, hey, this is the coolest and jazziest, latest bell and whistle out there. These things work. Uh, we're big proponents and big pushers about the Asafty-Wide from Tactical Medical Solutions. Uh, it's a phenomenal tool. The Comet Application Tourniquet from, uh, North American Rescue, just as good. They both each have pros and cons. Uh thing about tourniquets, we always tell people, well, they go on your arms and legs. How many arms and legs do you have? I mean, you got two of each. Okay. Um, so why carry one tourniquet? You might want to think about getting two just for that reason. Uh, but besides the tourniquet, uh, I would say a good pressure dressing, something like the Israeli dressing. Um, that's one of the – we've got a handful of those. That one and then the uh, Elias uh pressure dressing as well from TacMed solutions they both israeli and that elias uh, we recommend getting the six inch wide ones because um, it's just how hey, you get more surface area and uh, just getting a good there's pros and cons to each again but those are two uh, just for example types of pressure dressing that we like um, and then if you're talking about uh, and it's like a tactical environment with bullets flying well then you need to start looking at also maybe some penetrating chest trauma. So we you're starting to punch holes into the chest, into the lung area, and the rib cage. well, then we've got to look at that and start addressing those a little bit as well so you'll start talking about your chest seals.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I'd say even in other environments, I know of one construction accident where a guy fell off. Uh, he was only about 10 feet in the air, but he fell, and he, he had his chest penetrated with a piece of rebar sticking up out of the ground. And it doesn't matter what it is. You got a hole in your lungs. You got a problem.
1: Absolutely, yeah. That can, it can make a bad day go even worse, real quick. Um, so it doesn't always have to be that. You know, everybody wants to learn uh, how, how do we start the chest and do and identify and treat tension pneumothorax. Oh, that's that's kind of simple. It's <laughs> the hard part's getting to the patient. You know, just like you talked about the gentleman that uh, didn't make it because the EMS couldn't get to him. Well, if those people could have maybe had a – I'm not blaming one person or the other, um, but an option would be, hey, maybe the medics or the family could have said, hey, well, we need these drags and carries, manual drags and carries, or these uh, how to improvise a litter. We can take them 50 yards
0: yeah. to the meeting
1: it's yeah. true. Just a thought. I mean, with
0: snow on the ground, any type of a, a drag device would have been very, very effective in getting this guy because they were literally sitting there going, we're here. We want to help you. We, we can't get the vehicle in, and I don't know, and the big conflict was, well, should they have walked in, and, you know, what they were saying is, it, the, the, you're not the only one out there that needs help right now, you know, and, and, and so, I don't know, a, a freaking kid's sled probably would have saved this guy's life. Right, right,
1: well, yeah, well, I mean, don't get me wrong, neither one of
0: us are there, we don't know. We don't uh, know, but, I'm not putting either side down, I'm just saying, you know. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. But, uh, no, just the drags and carries. We, we kind of chuckle at our students sometimes when halfway through some of these scenarios, they thought, hey, well, it's kind of real cool and sexy to learn about the sexy stuff, like how to use this needle for needle decompression and the chest injuries and all this. But then the very base, the, the first things we teach people is scene safety, obviously, and then going to drags and carries and what kind of how to make improvised letters and make stuff work with some of the rescue rigging stuff. And they're like, Wow, we should have spent a lot more time practicing that than we wanted to learn this.
0: So um, Yeah, you know, here's the thing that like injuries that are not life threatening can become life threatening in the wrong environment, in my view. We have a lot of people that listen to this show that do backpacking, hunting, uh geocaching, things like that where they're off the main roads and even a couple of miles, if you're you're hurt and you can't walk, right? But you're not, like, hurt to the point where you're going to die from it. If you're out somewhere where you're going to run out of water, run out of food, and you can't get back, that's that can be a problem. And you can say, well, I got somebody with me, and they can go for help, but how long are you going to be there until they get back? And there's got to be some look, I think, that people need to be taking when they're going into these revo- remote environments of an exit strategy, of an extraction plan. Because, we, you know, everybody gets down on the – former president who I'm not exactly a fan of, but didn't have an exit strategy. And then people go into many things in our own personal lives without an exit strategy.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, okay, well I tripped and sprained my ankle um, or maybe it could be broken, but it hurts to walk on it. And I've got to send someone for help. Now well, I've got to sit there Uh just knowing a little bit of, uh, again, we don't use the word first aid. We like to say field medicine. Let's it's, call it what it is. Um, it's, but, to say, hey, well, I've got some survival skills training and we're always big pushers for saying, hey, you guys need to go get, we don't teach survival training, but there are schools and places that you can actually get survival training for that. So you can build shelters. So you get, knowing your survival skills, going back to that type of training will help you can be preventive and making a bad situation worse. So the spring day will now turn into hypothermia and mm-hmm. now we've got to start identifying treating hypothermia and then dehydration. Don't get me started on that. That's a soapbox. I don't jump on real quick there, but um, so it, it, you know, it re, you always resort back to your training, and all these little types of training add up very quickly and go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, because I think there's this this viewpoint of well, I'll help my buddy get out, but depending on where you went, if a guy is seriously incapacitated, you you may be at a point where your only choice is leave them there make damn sure you can get back to him and go for help and then he's got to kind of look you can kind of set him up before you leave but he's got to look after himself and and there are many situations we've seen where that's occurred
1: absolutely it's uh one of the things that we always get people asking us about is well hey well do you teach a class on how to do suturing and um how to do you know minor surgical type stuff and we kind of look at people and say, okay, well, do you have access to antibiotics? No. Okay, well, you, do you have access to clean water? No. Well, then let's stop there because if we, you know, let's resort back to the basics. Why were they bleeding? You know, why did the, can we not control this with a tourniquet or with a pressure dressing? And let's focus more on wound management. Uh, we always, you know, try to, uh, fight life now and treat infection later.
0: Sure.
1: You know, and so everybody wants to learn all the cool stuff about how to suture a wound up and sew that up. Well, if we close that wound without irrigating it and taking care of it, we're definitely going to have a bigger problem than they're not going to be bleeding out, but uh, now we're going to have an infection.
0: <laughs> so we've, <laughs> we've locked in, right?
1: Exactly. So again, let's, hey, let's, let's get them out. You know, it may take a couple hours, days. For an infection to say, well, that's fine. We'll worry about that when we come to it. But let's not accelerate it any faster than we already have.
0: Can, can you tell us a little bit about the type of courses that you actually have at Lone Star Medical? Like, what are your most popular ones, and which ones are kind of geared toward a situation where, you know, nine one one or professional help is either not available or non-existent?
1: Sure, we've got about twenty some odd courses, depending on what your background is, what your, you know. Typical day is like where you work, what type of environment, um, and also what you want to learn. You know, I'll teach anybody that wants to learn anything, uh, but, uh, that probably the two or three most popular courses, uh, are now known for a fact are Medic One course is a two day course and it's a field medicine course. It's a non-tactical course and it's a 16 hour class that talks about everything from the penetrating and blunt trauma to the general medical emergencies uh, so everything from gunshot wounds, stabbings, car wrecks, baseball bats in the face, broken bones. I've tripped. I've fallen down the ravine. That type of stuff. Uh, we talk about the scene safety. You know, I don't, I'm really, really press upon students. Hey, check to make sure the scene's safe. There's no need to be running. There's no need to run into a situation and make it worse uh, if it's not safe. So big proponent on that and dehydration. But the medic one class covers all these types of general emergencies that we see that are more common than others, uh, and we, how do we identify them and how do we treat them? Uh, the classes, all of our courses, are about 80% the way I've written them, our curriculum, all of them are about 80% hands-on skills practice. So there's not a lot of me sitting up in front of the classroom with a PowerPoint and lecturing for two days. Um, in fact, I think our total PowerPoint presentation for all 20-something classes is about nine seconds long. Uh, <laughs> including free videos. So there's definitely no death by PowerPoint. It's get up out of your chairs because I've never put a tourniquet on somebody sitting in a chair. Uh, get outside or get out in the hallway, get in the cars, go get in a ditch, wherever we're having to have class because that's where it's going to happen. And we're really good proponents on, we really try to focus on, hey, we train as we fight, fight as we trained. I've got that background from my military background, so it just helps Presenting that information in that format to the students helps them kind of say, okay, well, here's how we do it. And then after whether you've kind of had a few chances to practice that skill, we'll actually throw as many scenarios as we can. And scenarios may range from uh, self-safe by themselves, hey, how do you put the turnage on But your leg, to how do you wrap your leg up with the bandage, to hey, you've got three patients you've got to deal with, or you've got one patient and three rescuers. Um, and the scenarios may run from two to three minutes to, two, three hours, uh, depending on the class uh, and how we're doing. But the medic one's very popular. Uh, we even actually here locally in the dallas Worth area have been very lucky to be uh, linked up with CareFlight, the air ambulance uh, out of Dallas and Fort Worth. They'll actually, uh, one of the cool things is they'll actually come out, send one of their people out, one of their flight medics, to do a landing zone safety uh, class. And a lot of people think, oh, well, I have to wait for the fire department to call CareFlight or any other air ambulance. And well, it's yes and no. You need to have them here. You need to do call 911. But, uh, they'll send somebody out. They'll actually teach for about an hour and a half, two hours, their LZ safety class and how to set up a landing zone. And, uh, they'll ask the class, say, hey, who feels comfortable we can do this now? And we'll have somebody raise their hand, some bracele, Good. Walk outside, call this number on my cell phone, tell them who you are and you need to send them an aircraft. And it's already pre-planned, obviously. And they will actually fly out a helicopter, and you'll give the students there along with the, uh, with the instructor, will give hand and arm signals to the aircraft and will land them. They'll shut down. Everybody gets out and kind of takes photos and looks around, and he goes over more of the safety procedures. And the cool thing about that is, well, if you happen to be uh, EMS or any public safety, uh, police department, fire, EMS, you'll get some free CE hours, CE hours out of it as well. Uh so it's not every day that everybody with a first aid class gets to have a uh <laughs> someone like as professional as CareFlight come out and uh present their aircraft. But uh the other class would be our Medicine X. That's been real popular here this past year, yeah, about year and a half, and that's more on the tactical side. That class uh is basically uh gunfighter medicine, if I had to pick a a, a word there, a few words. It's a lot of, uh, shoot, move, communicate, slap tourniquet on, tourniquets on. Uh, how does, you know, it's more of a, what does it happen to everything from John Q. Citizen that's a CHL holder to someone that is working in the combat zone. How do we do these tracks and carries? How do we, you know, identify and treat these different wounds specifically for a combat environment? And, uh, we've had such a success with that and typically everybody, we actually, the thing that separates this class from a lot of others, is we'll actually run live-fire drills. Our scenarios, after we do the lecture, of minimal lecture, a lot of hands-on skills practice, then our scenarios, everybody will be kitted up in whatever they typically will run, whether it's your CHL holder or you're wearing a plate carrier. Um, You'll grab your carbine and your pistol, and the scenario will be live-fire uh, drills. You'll actually have targets. You'll engage with a carbine or a pistol or both. And you'll either be one-man, one two-man, uh, one two man, and then possibly a four- to six-man team through these scenarios. And you will have a couple different mannequins downrange that you'll have to go and rescue and render A2 and drag and carry all over Texas and wherever we're at, all over the range. And that one's turned into a lot of fun for people. Uh, they've uh, been very receptive to that, uh, so much that we've actually included a new version of it where it's called our Medicine X EDC for Everyday Carry. We've had a lot of people that are CHL holders say, hey, well, that's great killed, but I don't typically carry a plate carrier with 12 magazines and, and four with me day-to-day. You know, I'm more, of you know, I'm running a Glock on my hip or something. Okay, so we've actually created a uh, course just specifically for that. So we teach people how how you can actually carry an, an IFAC and jeans and T-shirt, carrying your concealed pistol, however it may be, in a go bag or on your hip or however you're carrying it and run through scenarios with that. Um, That seems to be very popular right now.
0: That's cool because, I mean, my thing has always been if you're going to carry the ability to take a life, you should also try to bring along with you the ability to save a life and If you're ever in a a shooting situation, um, people say, well, the hell with the bad guy. And I think that's a little short-sighted because there's a a duty to try to save life. But my other scenario is why why did you have to shoot that person? And unfortunately, one of the biggest reasons could be in our modern society is because they were shooting other people. Uh, and, and certainly in that situation, I would give priority to those victims over the guy that I had to take out. But the same guy that's on, the one that's prepared to defend others needs to be also, in my view, prepared to help try to save others that have already been injured.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, the, there's a, the way e, the emergency medical services in America works is that there's uh, the ambulance. Just because you call 911 and you say I need an ambulance, there's been a shooting or any type of. Uh, violent altercation or anything like that, the ambulance and the fire department is going to stage down the street, so the be 10 blocks away or two blocks away, whatever the case may be, whatever they feel like is necessary before they come running into that scene, or to that um, environment. Well, if it's, uh, for example, you, you spoke of an active shooter scenario. So we're at uh, some big shopping super center and there's, an, there's a shooting that took place. Well, then on average, uh, if I, I'll have to double look, um, and see but I wanna say I was reading somewhere from a paramedic in Virginia or somewhere back east that did a study saying that the average response time to get severely injured people out of that hot zone or that contained area to the medics or the medics into into the hot zone or that contained area to render aid was anywhere from two and a half to three hours. Now that's including some of the international uh active shooters as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it makes no, you think of like different. Columbine, when that one girl was shot and and basically in a window calling for help and just basically threw herself out a window, and it wasn't like a lot of paramedics run up, ran up immediately to to render aid. No,
1: um, they're not because they're they're saying shot, shot too,
0: is what they're afraid of.
1: Exactly, and so no no ambulance crew, no paramedic or EMT is going to do that. Um, sure, we're there to help, but we're gonna we can't help anybody if, that, if the shooting's still going on. But the police have to arrive. They have to contain the situation, neutralize any and all threats, and still do their searches to look for more threats. That could take a lot longer than people think. Meantime, you're sitting there with uh, your buddy sitting there bleeding out, um, one, because you don't you have training, or two, you don't have uh, the kit with you. Um, and I'm not saying everybody needs to roll around you know, their, their grocery store carrying an ambulance in their back pocket. No, that's not what I'm saying. But, uh, you do, you know, back to the, what I said, Richard said was having a little bit of training information and that knowledge of, okay, the, the shooting's done, the threat's been neutralized, and now I can render aid to people. Um and we still teach that, you know, that's the Medicine X class. But we don't teach people how to run three to five second rushes between cover and concealment trying to save lives first. It's no, neutralize threat. That's saving people. Stopping, stopping the device, whether it's a, Ninja with the chainsaw to, hey, it's uh, just a, you know, bad guys doing bad things to, okay, uh, you need to neutralize that threat first. Um now I'm not, of course, telling people, hey, I expect people to go run towards the gunfire. Some do, some don't. But, uh, that's to each their own. Uh, you know, don't, I was seeing safety. <laughs>
0: Let's yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there there is that. Uh, and, and sometimes it's not that you're running toward the gunfire that there's with some of these shootings, you're you're in the gunfire, whether you want to be or not. And you can either hunker down and or you can return fire. And you, you, there's times where people could be put in that situation. And I think another thing that people need to think about is like, if I got somebody that's injured, I want to get them as, as stable as I can, as quick as possible. And then like you were talking about earlier about extraction, getting the person out of there. Um, because if I can't bring aid to the person, maybe I can take the person to the aid. And in this modern terrorist world that we live in, just because there was shooting doesn't mean there might not be something like secondary explosions and things like that. In fact, a well-planned attack would probably be designed that way. So you also want to get people the hell out of there.
1: Absolutely. Um, it's you know it comes back to the the basics. The reason we teach in that Medicine X class really harp upon the students to learn and get a good. You know, practice these skills training. That's why we do it on the drags and carries, whether they're manually or we use the rescue rigging and the drag straps. Um, You know, we show people, hey, you can take a 20-foot of uh, tubular webbing and use that in a couple of carabiners, and if depending on if we've got one or two patients, we can do a lot of moving. We can drag that patient and to wherever we need to go or carry them or get them down a staircase or down an, you know, a we had a student ask us, well, how do I work in a tall building? How do I lower them in an elevator shaft? I'm like, well, let's, <laughs> let's stabilize first. And <laughs> that's kind of extreme. Let's let the professional rescuers do that. Uh, that's sure. a little technical really quick. But uh, just the simple drags and carries. As simple as that is and as non-sexy as that is to learn, uh, that's going to be one of the primary you know, things you need to learn. Uh, and that comes back to in this class, we try to teach as applicable medicine as possible. You know, it's, uh, you work in that environment, yes. I mean, you need to learn it. If you're not, then let's not worry so much and focus too much on it. Let's cover some of these other basics and fundamentals.
0: I mean, we talked about, you know, people getting rebar shoved through their chest, getting shot, falling downstairs, getting hit by trucks. What's the worst injury that you've seen in your 15-year career? And I have a feeling it might be surprising to some people. Yeah, it's uh, – I.
1: I People usually ask me that, and the simple answer is dehydration. And it's kind of shocking for a lot of people. They're like, what about all the car wrecks and the mangled bodies? And well, yeah, that's, I've seen that and probably some crazy stuff, not any more than any other medic, but, uh, you know, I've, I've had a couple, you know, when I was in the service, I, there was a soldier that just flat out didn't make it because they didn't drink water. Uh, the most common injury I've seen in 15 odd years of being a medic, in the army, the SWAT team, the fire department, working different aspects of field and tactical medicine. Um, in 15 years, the most common injury I've seen is also the most gruesome, but is also the most easiest is the easiest to prevent, and that is dehydration. That's your heat strokes and your uh, heat exhaustion, um, that type of stuff. Uh, I, like I said, I really get up on a soapbox about preaching about hydration and just how important and how life-saving that really is. Uh, and people don't realize that. They come to our classes in our student info packet. I tell them, start classes Saturday and Sunday. If you haven't started Wednesday, <laughs> you need to start drinking water, um, which goes back to the survival uh, portion of things. You know, like, hey, you need to have the source of water. That's very, very important. Uh, I always tell people, hey, you need to... S- you know, it's not me. I didn't quote this or come up with it, but uh, from reading about it, it sounds like everybody needs to be drinking half their body weight in ounces per 24 hours. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you need to be drinking 50 ounces of water every 24 hours. That's just to maintain normal hydration.
0: I think that's so important that people understand that. Like, so that, that, and if you change the environment, that, I don't care if you think it's a lot of water, it may not be enough. If we're in a environment with high humidity, 105 degree temperatures where you're sweating and sweating and sweating, then you need more than that. That's like a baseline.
1: Exactly. And that's where people think, okay, well, um, I, I've spent all week in the office. I'm not really, haven't been active. I've been inside most of the time. Yeah, I mow the lawn Tuesday night. Okay. No big deal. But then this weekend, I'm going to go do, um, I do a quick, you know, two mile, five mile, whatever. Hike, day hike, or something. Well, then, if you haven't been hydrating before that, within, you know, however, it depends on every quote unquote body is, is different um, and reacts different. But if you start feeling thirsty or experiencing these signs and symptoms of, the, of a heat casually, well, then you're already behind the power curve. It's not like, well, I've already drank two bottles of water. Uh, well, the problem is you're already behind the power curve.
0: <laughs> Correct.
1: And it's the Correct. hardest thing to treat in the field. And the only, even in the emergency room, I don't care if I have six emergency rooms uh, and you know 12 hospitals and every uh, trauma surgeon on on staff there with me. The only thing we can do, and well, we we'll just start an IV. Teach me how to do an IV. Um, all of us sitting right here in our office, sitting in front of our computers, could probably, you know, push, I don't know, two, probably two liters of water in an IV with an IV solution, and then our bodies would even notice it. Huh. You, know, it, it, you know, it's kind of like, well, just give me an IV. And I drink with people say, no, drink water, or we'll start IVs in the neck or the top of your foot, just to kind of encourage them to, <laughs> to drink water when we're out in the field. But yeah. uh, it's very easy to get behind that power curve.
0: But now, I'll really tell you, my experience has been people that are starting to go into the heat exhaustion phase, and you're trying to get them to drink water, like you say, No, oh, we'll put an IV in your forehead just to get them to drink because it's better than to drink that a lot of times they have trouble drinking. And one of the things we've experienced with people in that state is if you give them something with a straw, they're better able to drink. And to me, that goes in your med kit is straws. And it's, it's something that I've learned from personal experience.
1: Sure, absolutely. You, you can, you know, come up with how, whatever works. Um, straws are another idea. Uh, with kits, I, I always caution people, hey, well, there's your immediate life-threatening kits, and then there's your boo-boo kits. And there's no need to combine the two together, uh, or to, you know, I've seen it a dozen times on the shooting range in their, on a shooter's bag where they have their immediate life-threatening kits like their IFAC, and you open it up and the first thing that falls out is band-aids. Or some (laughs) first aid crate ointment or something, and I'm laughing, I'm like, where's your tourniquet? And they say, oh, it's in the wrapper buried in the bottom of my, you know, bag or something underneath, uh, the staple gun. And I'm like, really?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Even if you have the band-aids in there, don't you think you could? It's better to dig for the band-aid than dig for the tourniquet or the the the, the quick clot or or something like that, you know? Because like the band-aid is like, I like guess it's a boo-boo. Like we'll get to it when we get to it. But if you actually need a tourniquet, you need it now, not exactly. not, not later.
1: Exactly. Um, so we, you know, even when there are classes, we do talk about kit selection. We the cool thing about some what our students have really thought was really cool about our classes is we provide the students with all the different, or not all of them, it's impossible there's billions of different manufacturers but a lot of the major manufacturers equipment and products to you so that we use the student before you go and spend a lot of money on these kits and equipment you can kind of play with them, see what you like and don't like, hear our thoughts and opinions on them and get to apply them in these scenarios and these skills practice to find out, oh yeah, that, uh, that tourniquet doesn't work, I couldn't get it to work one-handed or and I couldn't get it to, to work both-handed. Um, I've seen – so we we try to – I don't want to word that. We try to uh, give as much of the products and let the students make that decision and get it trained with a lot of different products so that way they can make that decision when they go and purchase it. Uh, but with dehydration, absolutely. You've got to stay up in front of it. The, the only way to treat dehydration is just time and water. And then that's it. So if they're back to our five five mile hike day hike, and we're already kind of cramping up, or we're nauseous, have a headache, um, and that's just the early stages, or that's that's a kind of a um, that's not immediate. That's that's that can get life threatening very very quickly.
0: Yeah, and I mean the danger to me is when like okay if we're going to hike five miles and we're two and a half miles in, um, that means we're two and a half miles to get back out and at that point if you're in that that scenario it it it's a it's a really bad scenario i remember when i was in airborne school that there were certain things we had these helmets with uh numbers on them so they just called you by a number but then there were like things they wrote on people's helmets to identify that they were had a certain risks and one was bee sting uh which i wish you know the poor guys that had bee allergies it would have been nice if they would have put b but instead they put bs on their helmets um uh, but then the other one was h and H was for people that had a heat injury. And the reasoning was that if a person had already experienced a heat injury, they were more likely to experience another one than somebody that hadn't.
1: Absolutely. And not only experience it again, but it's going to hit them 10 times faster and harder. So when they do start having okay, I have the, the tummy aches or um, I'm kind of nauseous, I'm throwing up, or um, I just generalized weakness, then guess what? if typically than they've been a heat casualty before. I mean, all of us that have lived in the Southwest at least one summer, I promise you we've all been a heat casualty.
0: <laughs>
1: sure. Sure. <laughs> it just, we've all been there. Uh, so that being said, well, okay, it's going to hit you 10 times harder. And once it has, you're done for the day. Um, whether we've been out with our friends doing a hike or on the range or something. And I come across people that are already showing signs and symptoms. They're done for the next two, three days. Um, I, you know, uh, when students, if they're not properly hydrated, even in our simple classes, and we're not that physical about it, you know, we're you know we'll work with with sure. limitations and abilities, um, but uh, you know we're really cautious about pushing them, and we're not going to push them any farther than they can. But um, it's going to hit them ten times harder because the chances are they've already been a heat leak, They're going to be hit ten times harder and faster, and then that means recovery and to fix it is going to be that much more difficult. Uh, and it takes recovery. So the next day they think, oh, I spent all day weekend doing a hiking, Monday morning I go back and I stop drinking water, even though I've been drinking water all weekend, your body's going to take two or three more days to recover from that uh, from that, using are pull that, that fluid and that liquid I, you I know have to is, right after the event
0: Yeah, I know this is a soapbox injury, uh, issue with you, and it is for me too, that's why I'm sticking with it for a while and I mean, I'd like to point out one of the things you said there that that people don't take in passing is once somebody's had this experience before, simple fatigue is an indicator that you're headed for it again when you're in any type of an environment. And my other thing is if you want to know what your primary preventative medical kit could be for you, I believe camelbacks save lives. When you have that water constantly going in your body during these – any type of outing, uh, I think it's one of the the you know everybody was like, well what do I need a med kit in case something happens? Prevention is more important in many instances because this is an injury that kills people.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, the Camelbacks are phenomenal. Um, you know, whatever type of refillable canteen you know device you're using, the Camelback pipes with the bladder on the back of the tubes. Absolutely, you can keep walking. You keep doing your physical activity, whatever you're doing, and you can still just throw that thing in the corner of your mouth and sip on water constantly.
0: Uh, you know, and you drink more. I have the Mule. It's got a three-liter bladder, and I'll be out working in the garden, and next thing I know, it's drained, and I think there was no way I would have drank three liters of water with a bottle. It just wouldn't have happened. It's second nature, so that's why I'm a big fan of them. The other thing I'll point out is when I was in airborne school, it was hot, Fort Benning, Georgia, in the summer. And if you talk about a place that has a potential for heat injury, it's it's Fort Benning, Georgia, and the, the level of physical activity. Now, granted, it's all young young guys and gals in really good shape that were in good enough shape to want to go there. So there's a little predisposition toward being in better shape than let's say the 45 year old guy that's had two heat injuries in the past. But they made you drink water. Constantly, before you ran, after you ran, in between. So as much as they were forcing you to do physical activity, they were forcing you to drink. And the total number of people I saw experience heat exhaustion out of a class of over 500, and about 100 didn't make it through, um, was zero. Absolutely zero. If water's going in, it doesn't happen.
1: Absolutely. You've got, and it's water. A lot of people think, oh, what about these oral rehydration stuff or this bell and whistle or this jazzy stuff. Um, all these different chemicals is what I call them. Um, now I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, by any means, some nutritionist or, uh, health nut by any means, but, um, it's water. And people think, oh, okay, well, what about, uh, these energy drinks? Uh, and I don't know if we can say this, but, uh, you'd probably be safer off doing pure Bolivian cocaine up your nose than drinking those energy drinks. <laughs> um, I don't know how you may have to edit that out. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, no, that's not a few. The, the sugar is so bad, it's not, you need water. Um, yeah. as sacrilegious as it, as it is to say in Texas, don't drink iced tea. I may get in trouble for that comment. Um, but no, tea is a natural diuretic. It's sucking that moisture out of the cells and that fluid out of the cells, so you don't want to do that. It's water, 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 water. There's not a, um, well I just don't like the taste of water. Well then, die. <laughs> 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 what do you want me to do? Okay,
0: I, I do thought I was running. harsh, Caleb. My God, you don't like water, die! But no, I understand what you're saying. You know, and uh, if you don't like the taste Sorry, of your water, on. maybe you need to get some it's different ones for half or So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's things that we can do. You know, we can put a little drop of lemon juice or something. But I, I agree with you. Water is the way to go. And the the energy drinks with the high fructose corn syrup. All I'll say to you is, if you think that's a good idea. Go to the grocery store, go in the baking aisle, and find a bottle of corn syrup. Pick it up and turn it upside down and let it flow around and look at it. And to, to ask yourself if that looks like it's going to help you uh, in, in a hot environment. And if Your body, your mind, you know, the the, the like when we, we see good food, we naturally feel like we want to eat it. Uh, it. It also works the other way. When you look at it, you go, I don't want that. And and, and your, the innate intelligence of the body will tell you that's probably not a good idea. Now, another question I have for you, you have all these great classes, all this great stuff people can come and learn. Do they have to go to Texas? Because, I mean, you guys are the Lone Star Medics, you know, uh, or can you do training in other locations?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. um, We're going to be traveling all the way to uh, Tennessee, to Utah, um, all over Texas. Um, We've really grown, so we're always looking for people to host class. Uh, it doesn't take much. We're not one of these big schools that says, hey, if you have, to have 30-something people to make a class happen, it's usually like numbers of six or eight students to make a class, usually. Um, and we have, the not everything's a, a two-day class. If people want to kind of test the waters, we've got plenty of eight-hour classes to choose from and little two-hour module classes with very specific subjects. Um, but uh, so we do, absolutely, we will travel and come to you, and we're always looking for hosts.
0: My other question for you is you talked about all this equipment that people can get experience with, and you guys have, like, tested it and found the stuff that actually works and seen it work in the real world. Do you guys sell equipment, or do you just recommend it?
1: Uh, we try to focus more on the training side of the house. We have here recently, uh, after students have been pleading with us to actually say, okay, why don't you just sell this stuff? And, okay, well, we've come up with about four to five different types of kits depending on – you know, your working environment or where you're going to be at that'll, uh, for that, for those environments. Uh, we're very specific about, okay, we'll get the right tool for the right job. Um, and so it may be the same kit, but carry three or four different ways. So of those four or five kits, it may be the same contents, but different ones. So yes, we do have stuff for guys running, uh, something off their chest rigs and body armors in a tactical environment to, uh, ham and in jeans, a t-shirt, uh, with a, uh, an ankle holster type deal it sounds kind of funny to um even the the fan pack we've got a modular man bag from mars tactical that we've been running the ifac out of when we go to the range or just walk around town and i've worn that under my shirt under a t-shirt and jeans and no one knows it's there it's not this big whole huge bulky thing uh so sure we've got the whole medic 8 bag too backpack that's well, it's a little bit more priced than <laughs> what people want to hear, but uh, we can put the back of the ambulance in your backpack if you want. Um, it's not always recommended or needed.
0: Awesome! And do you guys have a website where people can learn more about you and take your courses and all that good stuff?
1: Sure, we're at Medics dot com, and we're also uh, we've got a Facebook page. Okay. You can look us up on Facebook as well.
0: Well, what I'll do is I'll make sure I put links to your site and your Facebook page in the show notes so people can connect with you. And uh, I'd like to thank you for being on the air today, and I'd like to thank you for getting on your soapbox about dehydration because, to me, it is one of the number one uh, injury threats to people, and we're going into a time of year where it gets really bad, and especially in the South. Yeah, it uh,
1: looks like we're going to be for a hot one this summer. Uh, this summer, excuse me. I need to drink some more water. See, it's already affecting me on being nervous on the radio.
0: So. <laughs> well, we, we did appreciate you being here with us today, uh, Caleb. Uh, uh, thanks for being on the air with us.
1: Sure. You guys have a good one.
0: And, um, and with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico today along with uh, Caleb Causey, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody up.